Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. I want to let listeners know there's a brief postscript at the end of this episode expanding on something that came up in the conversation. So stay tuned at the end if you're interested. Today is January 13th, 2015, and I want to remind listeners to go to econtalk.org. And in the upper left-hand corner, you'll find the link to a survey where you can vote for your favorite episodes of last year and tell me a little bit about yourself. I'd really appreciate if you do that. And now on to today's guest, Alex Tabarrok, professor of economics at George Mason University. He blogs at marginalrevolution.com, and our topic for today is private cities. Alex, welcome back to Econ Talk. Great to be here, Russ. Now, we're going to draw on a recent paper you've written with uh, Shruti Rajagopalan called Lessons from Gurgaon. India's private city, but we're also going to talk about the rest of the world and what's going on in the history of private cities. Let's start with Gurgaon, which is spelled G-U-R-G-A-O-N, I think, for those of you who want to Google it. Um, Tell us what's happened there, rather remarkable uh, turn of events in a very, very short period of time. Sure. So the interesting thing about uh, Gurgaon is that as little as 1991, you know, 30 years ago, it was nothing. It was just basically wasteland. Uh, it's just outside uh, 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 Delhi, and there was really nothing uh, there at all. And today, when you go to Gurgaon, it is on the surface a gleaming modern city. It has skyscrapers. It has uh, one of the largest malls in the world, the Mall of India. Uh, it, it's got... Uh, apartment buildings, lovely, you know, with marble and all kinds of things like this. And it's a real IT uh, hub. Now, this city has grown. It's now over nearly 2 million people, grown from basically nothing to 2 million people. And it has grown almost entirely in the absence of government. Uh, Government has basically failed when it has tried to do anything there. But the private sector has to a large extent, filled in the gaps. uh, And we'll talk about, you know, where it has failed to fill in, where the gaps have been too large. But this city has grown up with uh, no uh, urban government. There's really no city government. And it's really grown up in the absence of uh, much state uh, regulation or control as well. So it's a very interesting case of a voluntary city or a private city. And as you say, it's gleaming, it's fancy looking. On the on the surface, it appears to be a remarkably successful city. Certainly, the population suggests it's it's definitely doing something right. Of course, as you point out, there are many things that are not going so well there, and we'll talk about that. But what's fascinating to some extent about this uh, growth is there's another city very nearby, also just outside of Delhi, that was sort of privileged to be the place everybody thought would grow. And tell us about what happened there. Right, that's uh, Faridabad, and uh, it was much more beginning in in this thirty year sort of growth period. It was already more developed. It had a rail link. Um, it was where there was an there was an urban government, and indeed, this was the place where people thought 
that uh, growth would happen. But the bureaucracy, especially with these local urban governments, on top of state governments, on top of national governments, uh, was just overwhelming. And so very little has gone on there. It's a much less uh, developed area. In contrast, the area which was ignored by government and which was uh, just really just a, a, a not even useful farmland. It was more a wasteland than anything else. That area has been the area which has grown. Now, the growth, what's, what's interesting is that it would be – it's too much to say that Gurgaon is a Potemkin city. That's not correct, but – uh, nevertheless, you should explain what that is because not all <laughs> listeners will know what a Potemkin city is. Right. So a Potemkin city was sort of a, is a fake city that the uh, uh, Russian communists sort of created to uh, make uh, it look like they were doing better than they were. And and I, it's a Hollywood kind of like Hollywood uh, storefronts. You'd, you'd, it would look like there was a store there, but you'd go through the door and there was it was just a uh, right. a shell Ex- exactly for for yeah. visitors to be impressed by, and then. Uh, then they tear it back, tear it all down, and and go back to life. Now this isn't that, but it does sort of remind me of a scene in the movie uh, Titanic when uh, Leonardo DiCaprio he's sort of dressed in his tuxedo and you he's in the ballroom and you see all this wealth and this fabulous ship and then he's being chased and he runs and he runs down into the engine room. And uh, you see all these grimy, dirty people uh, uh, shoveling coal into the uh, furnaces. And you realize that all of the stuff which looked modern is actually underneath has this very primitive 19th century feel. And Gorgon is a little bit like that in the sense that you have these gleaming skyscrapers, but there's no public sewage system. In fact, there's no uh, central or uh, unified sewage system. So a lot of these skyscrapers, the sewage comes and it's taken into trucks and it is then dumped uh, sometimes illegally, you know, on land, you know, elsewhere. The same thing is true with the uh, electricity system. So the electricity system, again, the the public part of the uh, system, uh, the electricity is uh, on and off all all of the time. It's never on for sort of 24 hours. In the, in the summer, you know, you can't depend upon it at, at all. The water system, uh, most of the water is on and off. You know, you can't depend upon the public system. So there's very little infrastructure. And one of the reasons we were looking at Gurgaon is to understand what's the limits of uh, private entrepreneurship in developing a city like this. And, you know, you have to be what – what, one of the things I, I found so fascinating about this is, one, is your um, – even though I know you're – as I am sympathetic to voluntary action, you, you're not going to hide the warts. There, there are a lot of warts there. A lot of things are not so attractive. But it also reminded me of what's called the nirvana fallacy. The idea is, oh, so we just need um, – we just need public sewage, public water, and public electricity, which is might be true. Uh, it's it's but, but if the if you're going to think about that seriously, you do have to look at other parts of India that have public water, public electricity, public sewage, public schools, other things that are done uh, from the top down through through a government, local or otherwise. 
and they don't work so well there either. So you do have to make it a to make it a, a valuable comparison. You have to take into account this thing called reality, as opposed to what we like to think of as how it might work in our imagination. So both sides of this ideological debate, philosophical debate, have this problem, right? Those of us who like private say, well, the private sector will solve this. Well, dumping sewage in a field that you don't own is not exactly solving it. That That's an unsustainable solution, I guess. Uh, so re- react to that. Yeah, so let me, let me go back and say, you know, why were we interested in this? Why did we write this paper? Well, the world, as we all know, is very quickly urbanizing, right? So between 1950 and 1920, the world's urban population quadrupled. Between uh, when? Between when? Between 1950 and uh, 2000, I'm yeah, sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Um, and by 2050, it's going to double again. So between just 2015 and 2030 in India, the urban population is expected to increase by over a quarter of a billion people. So just think about that. What that means is in, in the next 15 years, even taking into account the uh, reduced infrastructure in, in India, India is going to need on the order of a new Chicago every single year for the next 15 years at least and then continuing on into the future. So we have around the world massive increases in the urban population. Now – the develop and most of this is happening in the developing world, and the developing world, of course, is struggling with corruption and with poor governments and uh, with a lack of information. And you know, we just can't expect governments to work very well in these in these countries. So, how are we going to plan? You know, we can hope, right, that cities will be you know planned and laid out, and the uh, uh, sewage lines will be. Uh, uh, a plan for the future and everything will be divided neatly, you know, the way a urban planner in theory would do it. But that's just not realistic. So what is, what can we expect? Are there other ways of doing this? And Gurgaon is one possible um, alternative route, which involves, you know, leaving a, a whole lot to the uh, private uh, sector. Oh, now, yeah, but, go ahead. You know, when you talk about that increasing urbanization, say, in India, uh, the most likely way that's going to happen is that the existing cities in India are going to get larger, and they're going to have increasing stress on their current infrastructure systems, which are not very effective from what I understand already. And so the m- likely result of this urbanization and population growth is going to be muddling through with a big set of imperfections. It seems to me China's taking a different approach. China's saying, we need a bunch of new cities, so they're just building them. They're building cities out in the middle of relatively nowhere from scratch with lots of buildings, lots of infrastructure uh, from the top down. And uh, I I did read today, and I didn't get to get to click through on the tweet, but uh, somebody tweeted that uh, India was – excuse me, that the Chinese – some Chinese officials were bidding on – auction in auctions to keep land prices high in some of the cities that they're worried about. This is not likely to be a successful strategy for creating value. Um, but China's taking a different approach. Might it, it might, it might be a lot better. So current urban areas are certainly going to grow, 
But there's also no question that we're going to need entirely new uh, cities, both in India and China and elsewhere. And you just look at the United States. Uh, even in the United States, which has long been majority urbanized, we've seen growth of really essentially new cities like Houston, you know, has grown in the past, you know, 50 years from 100,000 to, you know, several million people and so forth. So we are going to need, and you think about the Industrial Revolution in uh, Great Britain, uh, the creation of new, new cities like Birmingham and, and so forth. Um, it's not just London getting bigger, in other words, although that happened as well. So um, I want to put China aside uh, uh, for a minute and maybe come back and talk about that. But that's, I want to keep on and gurg on for a little bit longer um, because I want to talk about what has worked and what, what hasn't. Yeah, go so ahead. Uh, fire prevention in uh, Gurgaon uh, works really well. So what has happened is that these private developers are by a chunk of land. And within that chunk of land, you have excellent infrastructure. You have excellent delivery of services. So within – so the um, developers will build office parks. And within the office parks, you have uh, sewage, but the sewage doesn't go anywhere. It just sort of goes uh, – you know, once yeah. it leaves the office park. Yeah. Well, sometimes it will go to a small treatment plant. Uh, you'll also have electricity, uh, electricity 24 hours, but funded with diesel. Uh, provided with diesel, which is, you know, inefficient. You don't get all the economies of scale. You do get excellent fire protection. It's pretty interesting. Uh, Gurgaon has India's only private uh, fire um, department, and it's the only uh, fire department uh, really in all of India which has uh, equipment which can reach the top of these skyscrapers. Uh, Good you know, idea. The, yeah, yeah, exactly. The public system is a complete disaster. You also have uh, a delivery of um, uh, transportation. So these private firms hire uh, uh, taxis, sort of like Uber, but uh, a totally private uh, system to bring their workers, ferry their workers all over the, the city. Yeah, by the way, I, I should, it's important to mention uh, – um, We've had some discussions of private buses here uh, in Chile with Mike Munger, but uh, of course, many firms in uh, Silicon Valley outside of San Francisco bus workers uh, into the into their companies and have major, significant uh, private bus companies. Exactly, it's run, very similar. They're running them themselves. They're not. I think I don't think they're 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 hiring them out, but they're not public. Exactly. Very very. It's very similar to that. So. Um, when I, when we, uh, and, you know, looking at this question of sort of what we expected and, and, you know, warts and all, when my co-author and I went to look at this city, what I expected was maybe what you might have expected as well. I thought, well, okay, what we'll see is the coast theorem working itself out. So what we'll see is that these islands of planning of these private, uh, uh, office parks and so forth, that they would slowly come together and that the private system would, in fact, solve these problems of economies of scale, that slowly you would get two office parks joining, they would build a sewage system, they would uh, combine together, even if they were from different companies, they would combine together to create eventually a efficient electricity system which could use economies of scale and so forth. And that we just did not find. So that really was the 
was the surprise to me. The transactions costs were just uh, too high um, so that we you just weren't getting the economy as a scale. So you have a lot of pollution because you have diesel uh, instead of an efficient electricity plant. You don't get these firms together to build a unified uh, sewage system. Uh, a lot of failures of that of that kind. So let me let me challenge that just for a sec because um, I take your point. I think it's there could be other reasons besides the transaction costs that keep that from happening. Could be they think there's going to be a, a public infrastructure imposed on at some point, and they'd be wasting their money. I I, I don't know, but let, let's just take the, the basic way that you described those imperfections. You said. You know, it's inefficient. The scale's too small, so they're using diesel. They're polluting as a result. Um, the uh, sewage is, is un- probably an unsustainable solution or at least an, a, a, a very unattractive one. The electricity grid for the city as a whole is very imperfect. Maybe within these industrial parks it works very well, but it's expensive. It's more expensive than otherwise would be if there were economies of scale. And, of course, I want to come back to the nirvana fallacy. You say it's inefficient, but, of course – Doing it across the city with elected officials, patronage problems, corruption, especially in India, that's also very inefficient. And we, I don't think we want to just say, well, the city is, is, is failing in these areas because it doesn't do it as well as it could in America, say, where they have public governance and it works very well. Absolutely. So compared to the rest of India, uh, Gurgaon is actually pretty good. Uh, and this is often forgotten the Ravana fallacy, as you say, when people look at Gurgaon, uh, because there is this disconnect between it's sometimes Gurgaon has sometimes been called the Singapore of India. And it's the Singapore of India in terms of private development, but it's like the rest of India in terms of public development. So actually, when you compare, you're right, when you compare Gurgaon, even on sewage, most Indian cities don't have a sewage system. So Gurgaon actually uh, ranks reasonably high. Uh, the same thing is true of electricity. You know, there's lots of shortages in Gurgaon, but you may remember just a few years ago, almost all of India had a blackout. You know, you had like a quarter of a billion people without power for several weeks because the entire Indian subcontinent uh, in terms of electricity had a mass blackout, the worst blackout in the history of uh, humanity. So... Compared to the rest of India, Gurgaon actually does pretty well. But what I was expecting was that the private sector would do even better. Okay, <laughs> so you were, you were, I understand, you, you were, you had high expectations, they weren't quite, right. they weren't quite met. But before we go any, any, uh, any further, talk a little bit about schooling, because we recently had James Tooley on, and um, he talks about the incredible private school systems in the slums of India for poor students who poor uh, children from very poor families and their relative success in these in these schools uh, the public school system in India is tragically not very good uh, a lot of teachers don't show up uh, when they show up they don't teach and um, what's happening in Gurgaon that you know of so the amazing thing about India is actually we have the largest experiment in private education uh, going on in the world today is in India. In lots of districts in uh, India, you actually have a majority, sometimes 50, 60, 70 percent of the kids going to private uh, schools. And this is because, as Tuli points out, the poor send their kids to private schools uh, and often the rich do as well. So uh, the, the public schools, they're not great for the, – they're terrible for the poor – 
And they're also not that great for the rich either. Um, so you have a lot of, a, a lot of uh, entrepreneurship in private schools. And that's true in uh, Gurgaon. It's true in all over uh, India, especially in uh, the poor areas, uh, especially in poor urban areas uh, where private schools have yet to take off or where they're a smaller part is in the rural, in the villages, uh, where there's just very little education uh, at all. So let me paint a negative picture of Gurgaon that's different than the one that, that you're uh, – the gaps that you're talking about and uh, tell me if I've, if I've got this right or wrong. Um, when I think of a private city in the United States, and we're going to come back to the United States in a little bit, but uh, I think about Disney World, this uh, rather extraordinarily efficient uh, place that, that full of happy people and incredibly uh, well run. And anytime you, you have a problem, they solve it. Uh, just an incredible achievement. And all the externalities of urban life are, are internalized there because there's an owner of the whole city. So there's no litter. If you throw anything on the ground, uh, it's picked up. There's all people all over the place picking up litter, so it's spotless. In fact, it's to the point where it's a little bit sterile as a result. It's a little bit you, – you, you long for a little bit of grit and peeling paint sometimes when you're, <laughs> in, when you're at Disney World. It seems too perfect. But one of the things about Disney World that, that those of us who like voluntary action have to concede is it's it's really expensive to go to go there. And it's for an elite that you know in America a lot of people can afford to go there. It's not only rich people who go to – to Disney World, but it's very expensive, and it's not easy for poor people to go to to certainly to stay there in the Disney hotels and uh, and enjoy the full range of private stuff that's there. Uh, what's Gurgaon like? Is it you know I I was shocked to read that so many Fortune 500 companies have head have not headquarters have facilities there. You mentioned these industrial parks. One might think then that this is a city, it has all these successful features, some unsuccessful, as you've conceded, but is it just a city for rich people who can afford to enjoy the profitable amenities that have been privately provided there? So I think there's two parts to your question. Uh, on the second part, uh, Gurgaon has certainly attracted uh, high-tech workers who tend to be uh, among the you know better paid uh, workers, the new India. This is where the new wealth is being created in the IT sector, and Gurgaon is certainly a uh, epicenter uh, of that. Um, in terms of the poor, look, it's not great to be poor anywhere uh, in India, uh, and Gurgaon is no better or no worse, I, I would say, than other places. Certainly not. Um, uh, superior uh, uh, for the poor, but it's not worse uh, either. I, I think the key point which you made about Walt Disney World, which is absolutely critical, is that they assembled a parcel of land which was large enough to internalize these externalities. And I think that is the way forward in terms of a private model. It's not quite the Gurgaon model where you had these smaller parcels, which internalized externalities, the office parks and the skyscrapers and so forth, what we need to do is extend the borders. So there was lots of infrastructure development within the property line of these uh, developments. We need to extend the property line. So my ideal system actually would be something like uh, five or six Walt Disney World-sized cities all located within a competitive area, all located within a small – so divide Gurgaon into five cities 
make each of them large enough to internalize these uh, externalities for sewage, for electricity, and so forth, and then make them competitive to keep prices low. And in fact, we found a city uh, in India, uh, which was new to both of us, which actually follows the Walt Disney World model to some extent, much older. This is uh, Jamshedpur. It's a very interesting city. This was started by um, Jamshedi Tata. Uh, a Tata, you may know from the Tata companies. This was now talking about 1860s. The city was founded in the uh, 1890s, 1900. He was the founder of the Tata group of companies. Uh, he was a very entrepreneurial, very interesting guy. He traveled in the United States. Uh, he came to Pittsburgh and he learned all about the steel industry. And he decided he wanted to start a steel firm um, in, in India. And so he hired uh, British and American engineers and prospectors to come to India and to find the perfect place for this city. And they did. And it was in, the, it was in wilderness, complete wilderness, where they really literally had to deal with you know, marauding tigers and elephants and so forth. And so to get the workers to come to this city, they had to create basically a, a, a company town. And they uh, built uh, Jamshedpur. Uh, and they, they laid out all the streets, they provided sewage, they provided, you know, a little bit later, electricity. And Jamshedpur to this day is one of the best run cities in India because it has internalized, it's large enough to have internalized these externalities. So it's the only city, the, uh, the Tata part, the leasehold part, is the only city in India where you have 100% of the wastewater is treated it has the highest reliability of electricity in uh, just about all of India, perhaps excepting Mumbai. It's one of the best-run cities. And it's because it's been large enough to internalize the ex these externalities. And it's a city for workers. It's, a, it's an industrial uh, city. Uh, and it's worked out extremely well. I want to come back to this poverty issue, though. I take all, I, I, I mean, all that you said is right and interesting, but... Here's the again for a question for someone who hasn't been there, which would be me. Um, so, you know, in the United States, in say 50, 60 years ago, before zoning got, uh, to my mind, out of control in most American cities, every city had a large range of housing opportunities. They had fancy houses and not so fancy houses, medium sized houses and small houses. Houses in, in neighborhoods with lots of amenities and, and houses in neighborhoods with fewer. And housing prices were you know, a lot of choices for people. And that's gotten, I think, less true, and I think that's a terrible thing. And I think it's mainly through, through zoning that's made it very expensive to take care of folks. And the response in America has been you know, horrible policies like rent control to try to make housing available for poor people. What I'm wondering about is in places like Gurgaon where there's – where the profit motive is what's driving things, so it's successfully driving things in the school area in, in schooling for for poor people. There's there are private schools for poor people. I'm, I'm thinking about housing. So when somebody builds an industrial park, say with apartment complexes part of it, I assume they're fancy. Are, are there housing options for for poor people? Are poor people essentially priced out of Gurgaon, or can they people with lower skills go and live there and be part of this the uh, thriving part of this uh, of India? So there are housing options. Um, the difficulty is that it's still the, the system for getting hold of land and for uh, 
getting permits and so forth to build. Even in Gurgaon, which has a, a simpler system than the rest of India, it's still quite complicated and requires basically paying a lot of bribes. Uh, it's still quite a corrupt uh, system. It's and a simpler this, was, this yeah. started in 2008, right? But there was almost nothing in terms of regulation until 2008. Is that accurate? Well, that's not quite accurate. So, what it, so in most of India, you have all these overlapping multiple bureaucracies. And it's sort of what I call serial competition, serial in the sense of an electric circuit. You've got to go through each gate before you get to the final result, and after gate after gate after gate. So there are multiple hurdles that one has to cross. And what uh, Haryana, which is the state in which Gurgaon did, is they simplified the system so that you only basically had to go through one master gate, <laughs> um, but you still had to pay a toll to go through the master gate. But at least you only paid one toll. It was a more efficient system. So it's still a system in which um, a farmer can't simply take a piece of land and sell it to somebody who wants to build a building there. Uh, what you Alex, have, yeah. that, that's true in the United States also. You, yeah. you make it sound like it's this archaic, weird thing. They have with these overlapping bureaucracies. We've got the same thing. We have, so we have the way I would environmental it, regulation. We absolutely. have the zoning. We got the just so the, the way I would. The bribes it, are subtler in the United States. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Is that the Indian system? It's like Portland level regulations on top of Indian bureaucracy and corruption. So think right. about it that way. Uh, it's like they've adopted the level of regulation for a developed country and they're putting it in a you know, less developed country uh, and one where there's still a lot of corruption. So that's – if you can imagine you know, Portland with 10 times the inefficiency, same rules but much more inefficient. That's kind of the system that they have. So back to the housing, yeah. Yeah. So, so to get through that, so they, um, uh, you need a developer – uh, a big developer to get through that. So mostly it has been uh, development of uh, apartments and condominiums and so forth for the IT class, the new workers uh, in India. There are um, a range. There's definitely a, a range of developments. But I wouldn't say that this is not a uh, – Gurgaon is uh, – it's not a paradise for a poor uh, workers. There's not a lot of high-quality, low-cost housing. I think, again, that, you know, the, there's always this trade-off. You've got uh, – if you have a parcel of land, you, you want it to be as – and you, you can develop it. You want to develop it as profitably as possible. As you move – I assume as you would move farther from the city center – it might be profitable then for the highest use of that land to be lower cost housing, lower quality, not as fancy, not as large housing apartments, because you can't uh, – people aren't willing to pay as much when they're that far away from the center. So I, I can imagine there being – just as in America, it's profitable to build – not every developer wants to build the fanciest apartments because the poor people are willing to pay. So you can make profit by developing it. But if you only have one piece of land and it's in the center of the city, it's probably going to be developed – or higher end, if you have other parts of land, and as you point out, if you could extend past the board, extend the borders, then you'd think there would be more uh, choices for people of uh, lesser means. 
That's right. But it's also if you have to pay the fixed cost of going through the bureaucracy, uh, you're going to want something fairly uh, significant to develop. So the poor end up on uh, creating basically slums on uh, 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 on land which is uh, unowned or on state land, common land. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and some of the some, you know the slums is not quite the right word because some of the slums can be quite nice, right? Uh, you know, people building on their own uh, if they expect to be, stay there. Some of them can be quite well built, um, but there's not a lot of private development for that class at the moment. Uh, are there roads there? And if so, where, who builds them? Yeah, so the road can, the situation is terrible. It's a disaster. Uh, again, um, within a development, the roads are great. Um, the main company there, uh, at DLF, uh, has built roads between their uh, office parks, you know, between their two developments. So there's a little bit of that going on. But actually, overall, the road situation, because it's on public land, is a disaster. It's terrible. Congestion is extremely high. The roads are of poor quality. There's very few traffic lights. So anything which is within the private areas is great. Anything which is in the public areas is a disaster. And most of the roads are in the public areas, and it's terrible. And that, of course, is true in much of India that has an active centralized government as well. Evidently, they don't have uh, – their road systems are not very effective. Exactly. So this is true all over India. Gurgaon is not worse in that respect. But again, the the disparity between the private and the public makes it look worse yeah, because you can right. see the difference. Yeah. Um, do you want to say anything else about Gurgaon? Can we move on to uh, some of these private cities outside of uh, India around the world? Sure. Talk about what uh, is going on in the Congo. So um, – so actually, I don't. I don't remember what's going on in the Congo. Well, well it could be. It could be in some other uh, countries as well. My understanding is there are Russian. Uh, that's because I've been mining the archives of Marginal Revolution. Yeah, I, your I, blog I'm sure, I before, before this episode, you did blog on it. Um, there are evidently Russian entrepreneurs who are buying up large tracts of land to try to take advantage of economies of scale in African countries and building cities from basically from scratch that would have infrastructure because they're large enough to to do this and they're centrally owned centrally owned not by the people not by the public but by uh, a developer right so i think the model makes a, a great deal of sense and it's also you know tied in a little bit with the possibility of charter cities which uh you know you've talked about with paul romer it, what we really need to do since we are it is going to be necessary to uh, have many more cities. Uh, Africa, of course, is urbanizing uh, rapidly, and there's a lot of um, unused, essentially uninhabited land. So there is an opportunity to build large cities, uh, to have a single developer have a large enough area uh, to internalize all these externalities and to build a system from scratch, which has laid out places for parks, has laid out sewage lines, has laid out uh, water, where at least they're going to go so that private developers know, well, I should put my pipe so that they'll end up here, which will eventually connect with the public system. This comes back to a um, 
a line that some listeners asked me the source of. I don't know the source of it, but it's a, it's not mine, and it's uh, it's moderately amusing, but I think also very deep. Which is how do you uh, how do you cure poverty in Africa? And the answer is luggage. You, you <laughs> give people the opportunity to make it easier for them. You give them an easier way to get out of where they are, which are not very productive places for people to live relative to the altern- possible alternatives we could imagine. And what you're suggesting is that some people might just, as an entrepreneur, build a city and say, hey, folks, come here. Uh, I don't know if that was going to work very well. Do, what are your thoughts on that? So I think it can work uh, well. By, by working uh, well, I mean that profitable for the, for the developer and life-enhancing for the, uh, the uh, former subsistence farmer who now moves into a city. So people in cities are much more productive than in the agriculture. I mean, we know in agriculture, in in Africa, in Asia, that it's essentially subsistence living. So they're really just making enough to stay alive, to support themselves. Well, in the city, you can have people making it much higher, uh, much above subsistence level. So there's definitely room there for a large profit opportunity. And in fact, that is what has created, you know, modern China. It's getting hundreds of millions of people out of subsistence agriculture and into the cities where they can make uh, much more. The question is, are we just going to pile them into the cities and, you know, uh, hope for the best? Or can we have a planning uh, system? Uh, The public planning is usually not going to work. Because the incentives aren't there, the bureaucracy is inefficient, it's corrupt and so forth, can we have a private planning system? That's at least what the hope is. It works with, uh, worked with Walt Disney World. Uh, it worked with Jamshedpur in uh, India. I think it can work in other cities uh, as well. Well, the problem, though, is that uh, – let's take the United States to add that to the mix. Uh, you know, A lot of people left the south. They left agriculture and they flooded into – New York and Chicago and Detroit and Pittsburgh and and so on, Boston. And those cities were already there. They already had advantages for, you know, they were on water routes or they were in scenic places or they had, there were transportation hubs in other ways. There was a reason for those cities to be there in the first place to go from scratch and say, well, here's a good spot. Let's just try this. Um, There's going to be a lot more failure, I think. It, It could be, but think about like where I live in Fairfax. So even 20 years ago, uh, it was mostly uh, 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 agricultural land, you know, horse land and so forth, and now it's fully developed. So you could take a very big chunk of uh, land outside of a current city or outside the bounds of a current city, and with urban growth the way it is going, that will soon become a urban area. Uh, but it can be a well-planned ur- urban area if there's a single owner to begin with. There's something else which is worthwhile saying here is that when you have a single owner, the public goods, the, the sewage and the uh, infrastructure and so forth, it can all be supported out of rent because the reason Walt Disney World spends so much uh, to make its infrastructure uh, so uh, lovely is that people are willing to pay to go to Walt Disney World. Yeah, they capture that, the enjoyment and the benefits of those uh, services in the form of higher ticket prices that they otherwise would be. Exactly. So it's captured in the land rent. So there's a reason why uh, these firms would develop this infrastructure because then the other pieces of land can be sold for much higher uh, prices. So the profit motive can help us to build cities. 
Uh, we can think of it as a uh, hotel cities, right? Hotels are great. Uh, you know, you go in, everything, it looks lovely, it's beautiful, it's clean. You know, uh, you have some uh, common areas. Uh, uh, it might be a fountain or something like that, right? Equivalent of a park, yeah. Exactly, exactly. The equivalent of a park, just on a smaller scale. The bathrooms are nicer. The, the, the public bathrooms, they're private. The private bathrooms in a hotel that are in the public areas are nicer than the bathrooms in the park. Exactly. The there's, there's restaurants there. They clean them. Yeah. Entertainment. So what we need to do is to think about cities like hotels. How can we build a really large hotel? Uh, and after all, Walt Disney World, you know, you've, it, it has visitors. We just need to make them permanent, uh, you know, uh, in other cities, right? It's exactly the same process. And they the have residents. They, res- they have hotels there that are within the, the park there that are – they could be condos. There's no, no – maybe yeah, they have yeah. condos there. I don't know. Yeah. They, well, they certainly have uh, – you know, it's, it, they, they have places where people live. It's just that the people, you know, turn over. They, they, they are the, they're there for short periods of time. But like Airbnb. But people yeah. occupy the places <laughs> on a permanent basis, just different people. So uh, let's talk about the economics this for a minute because it's, it's a little bit of maybe hand-waving here um, that I want to challenge you on. Uh, let's say I'm a – I'm a very um, ambitious and entrepreneurial person. Uh, I'm actually a, a little bit entrepreneurial and a little bit ambitious. But let's let's jack me up about 20, 50, 100 times. So I buy this massive uh, area. And as you point out, I think, correct my earlier challenge, they're probably not going to build in the middle of nowhere. They'll build them near cities so they can leverage some of the complementarity and synergy you get from existing urban areas. So I, I'm able to put together a parcel. Let's ignore issues of eminent domain and that's what you're real. But let's say I've been able to put together this giant parcel. Am I going to own, which I now own, am I going to rent all the properties, some of the properties? Am I going to sell that land? If I sell it, what's the ince- what would be my incentives to maintain those um amenities and infrastructure into the future what's going to be the contractual relationship i'm going to have with either my renters or my sellers or my buyers for uh going into the future to maintain those incentives how's that going to work right how might it work so we do see this we uh, we do see cities like this uh rest in virginia again not too far from uh, uh where i am and where you are i guess most of the time uh, is a was a private city was it developed exactly on this uh, model? Um, so on renting versus uh, selling. So a lot of the uh, private uh, uh, firms, uh, private firm will buy like malls, will buy storefronts, um, uh, things of that nature. That's always going to be rented, right? Uh, you know, a restaurant which comes in will want to rent. The mall will tend to be rent its areas and so forth. So therefore, the incentives there are on a continuing basis. Some of the houses, some apartments, condominiums, apartments, people will want to rent. Um, uh, houses, um, uh, people will want to buy. But then think about uh, assessment, you know, taxes, right, which can be paid homeowners association fees, right? Uh, these will provide a continuing reason why the firm will want to keep its um, infrastructure uh, well developed. So, you know, I live with a, a homeowners association. Uh, most of the new housing in the United States is in a homeowners association, which is very similar to a private government. There are fees to keep up the infrastructure. 
and uh, that thus an incentive to keep the infrastructure uh, well maintained. Those are a little different, right? So, my neighborhood. Uh, I've lived in some uh, private-ish neighborhoods where we did our own, say, street repairs, and we had a little mini. You could call it a government. You could call it a private a volunteer association. Whatever you, you could call it, different things depending on how you interpret the semantics. But we would we would elect. Uh, a group of people from among us to be in charge of keeping an eye on the repairs or the garbage pickup or whatever it is, and we'd be independent of the larger city government, and uh, and that works that works very well. You lose the economies of scale and you gain the accountability that you get from a semi-voluntary or, or cooperative arrangement like that. But part of what we're selling here when we talk about these large cities is the economies of scale of that single owner having the opportunity to internalize the benefits of centralization or economies of scale. And as I start to sell off my land, it would seem that I'm going to go back to somewhat to where I am in Gurgaon, or am I being too pessimistic here? In other words, let me say it a different way. Mm -hmm. If I had, you know, a lot of this depends on how large one thinks the economies of scale need to be. If I have what you suggested earlier, take Gurgaon, take the city outside D.C. that's private, divide it into five or ten, and competition among them, is going to make it somewhat effective in making sure that the owner is responsive to the uh, to the buyers, even even when they've been sold, because there's other land maybe that hasn't been sold. Maybe the maybe the the original owner gets a share of the selling price of the house. I could imagine, you know, when it changes hands, maybe, maybe there are other ways to ensure the uh, provision of amenities so that they they're maintained. Yeah, so it could devolve, but. To the extent that economies of scale are important uh, and to the extent that we agree that the uh, a well-functioning sewage system is important, a well-functioning watering system, water system, electricity system, and so forth, what that means, another way of putting that is that the land is going to be much more valuable when it comes with these amenities. So uh, a developer, a profit-maximizing developer – is not going to want to split things up and let them all go their own way. Instead, given the opportunity to take advantage of these economies of scale, it's going to be much more profitable for them to uh, 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 keep uh, all of these things together and to use the economies of scale. So, I I mean, Gurgaon could be much more profitable than it is now. And I think it would have been had these uh, more large-scale land division been possible or been used. But I do think it's an interesting challenge to think about going forward if, as you sell off parcels, how that's going to – how the excellence is going to be maintained. Yeah, we don't have a lot of um, uh, experience. But from the experience we do have with Walt Disney World, Jamshedpur, and so forth, I think these things problems can be handled. Though I, I, I agree, these are challenges. You, uh, I want to continue on that, but before I do, I don't want to forget. Do you want to say anything about China before we continue? So China is an, an interesting organization, generally. Yeah. So um, we do know, you know, China has built these uh, so-called ghost cities which is clearly a negative impact of the uh, top-down uh, uh, approach. It seems that in many cases they are over-investing. Um, it's very hard to know, however, because so things are happening so rapidly that you can make a mistake 
uh, and you're only off by, you know, a year or two or three. Uh, you know, the growth is happening so rapidly. Uh, and that may start to slow. We don't know. But when you're growing at, you know, 10% a year as China has for the last, you know, 30 years or so, well, that means that the entire economy doubles in seven years. So there may be a ghost city now, but is it going to be a ghost city when the economy uh, uh, doubles in just seven years uh, time? It's very hard to say. So I I, I think that – yeah, go ahead. I guess the other question is is if you keep building ghost cities, maybe you don't double every seven years. That's right. I mean (laughs) – Can't keep that 10 percent rate going. The solo model tells us that uh, China has got to to slow down. It's not – once the – the reason China is growing so rapidly is that they're coming from such a low level. Um, once they get to a more reasonable level, as they are approaching, they will they will slow down in, to correspond with their, you know, basic infrastructure and political system, which is certainly not the best. So I want to talk about uh, what we were getting near to talking about a minute ago, which is uh, how government might emerge in these private cities. So let's go back to Gargan. You've got these different developers – Historically, that's what happened. They didn't have one single developer to to deal to take advantage of economies of scale. So you have all these different developers. They all realize this Kosian uh, bargain you talked about that they could, in theory, make deals with each other to jointly provide, say, roads um, or jointly provide better electricity, jointly provide uh, sewage, but but they haven't. Perhaps, right. be, perhaps because the transaction costs are just—it's just too hard to negotiate that and and make it work well and figure out what the benefits are and, and make a, an investment negotiation like that. So what we're left with is another possibility. There are two other possibilities. You just you muddle along with what you got, which is mediocre compared to what you could have. The other is you create a government. You 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 take the. Uh, you don't necessarily let the current government structure expand. You, you create a voluntary association like we talked about. But effectively, it would have some of the components of government. It might be voluntary in terms of payment, which would change things a lot. You'd have to get people to be willing to pay through maybe cultural methods or maybe there'd be a binding rule that eventually new development had to buy into that structure, pay the fees. Is it possible for a quasi-government or a real government then, a coercive, fully coercive one, to emerge such that it isn't corrupt, so that it isn't a patronage machine, so that it does focus on, say, providing infrastructure, things that it does better than the private sector. Uh, it would seem that the, that the people with a vested interest in that could perhaps plan that emergence or steer that emergence a little bit uh, so that it came out a little better than it would if it was imposed from the top down. I think it's going to be very difficult. Um, it's useful to compare with uh, New York, which really had the great fortune of uh, a government in you know 1800, which actually was remarkably far-seeing. Uh, I mean, it's not that government is always uh, uh, terrible. This is one of the few cases, perhaps, where uh, the government was far-seeing. And, and what they did in 1800, 1805 – is they laid out Manhattan. They laid out uh, New York with all the roads, uh, where they were going to go, all of the uh, uh, public areas, the parks and so forth, long before people were actually living there. Now, that's important because what, what has happened 
in Gurgaon is once you have the developments in place, then you've got these rents and people dispute over the rents. So in New York, you kind of had a veil of ignorance, right? And you had a constitutional moment where people didn't know what the rest of New York was going to look like. They didn't know who was going to own. They didn't know what these – which pieces of land were going to be especially valuable. So they were just able to lay out the roads and lay out the grid and no one complained too much because it, it, it wasn't obvious how you would make money out of, out of that. There are no vested interests there yet. Exactly. No vested interest. There's no people living there. They were talking, you know, they were laying out in 1800 things which wouldn't happen for another 100, 150 years, right? Um, so a constitutional kind of moment. In Gurgaon, now that the development is in place, uh, you know, one developer wants the sewage line to go this way. The other one wants it to go that way. And then the government, they want a share of the rents as well. So they're in the middle and they have the permits and the rights over these things and so forth. So you have a dispute. And that's where I think the transactions cost uh, really come from is everyone now knows, well, there's a lot of money here. And a single decision about where something is placed, you know, people are going to have to give up some of their land. So who has to give up the land for the road, right? Who gets the land which is beside the road, which is going to be very valuable? Who gets the land beside the um, subway, which is going to be extremely valuable because that's where people are going to easily be able to shop and that's when they're going to want to live? Who gets that piece of land? It's extremely, extremely difficult. So I think things will get better over, over time. Um, we do see a few examples of that. There was a metro system that's just been built, uh, the only privately built metro system uh, in uh, India. You mean a, sub uh, a subway by metro yeah, system? Yeah, I, I don't know if it's all underground, Train? but literally, I don't think it's literally underground, but it's a metro, a public, uh, you know, metro system. Um, train. Train, yeah. Um, but for commuters. Mm -hmm. uh, um, and that was privately built. Uh, it's about 13 kilometers uh, along, and it goes from, as you might expect, the major developer. It goes from you know one. It goes from uh, you know one part of the major developer's uh, control. You know the next stop is at the the next uh, industrial park, and then yeah. and so forth. So you know they had a reason for doing that. Well, yeah, and the, the Disney monorail stops at the different places that exactly. the park likes. Yeah, yeah, yeah the people want to exactly. go to. Yeah, yeah. So slowly you get some things like that, but the, the rents are now so large uh, that these transactions costs are so high that I'm not optimistic. What about – you've done a lot of um, studies of American history and urbanization and you just talked about New York. And, of course, the flip side of that New York story is that Robert Moses uh, – was planning like uh, like crazy a uh, little bit later than 1800. And right. some of his plans were extraordinarily great and some were just absolutely awful. Um, so once you consolidate the power to plan centrally, you do get um, some great and some awful things. Uh, what are the lessons of all of this for non-private cities? So you, you live in Fairfax. Uh, I live in uh, the great Montgomery County in Maryland most of the year. Um we have great cities in America, but many of them are doing very, very badly. Uh, the, the core central cities, they they too suffer from these infrastructure problems, even though they're not private. They have bad schools. They have bad police. They have bad roads, potholes, fire service not good, um, et cetera. 
What, do we, what can we learn from this, uh, if anything? Uh, in a way, Gorgon is a, maybe just a one-off miracle of, of a wonderful little experiment of how well a private city could work with, with warts, but it works pretty well. Uh, does that have any less, anything for us to learn in, in a world where Disney World is kind of a uh, – it's just an amusement park it's right now. It's not a place where people can live and work in any great number. So we're not building too many new cities uh, in the United States, though our cities are continuing to grow. And it is interesting that the way they're continuing to grow is in almost entirely through private efforts. So um, most new housing will be built today in the United States with a private government, something like a homeowners association, uh, which really takes over from the municipality. These homeowners associations uh, – 60, 70 million people now live in them. They uh, collect uh, billions, hundreds of billions of dollars uh, worth of uh, fees. They now control everything, um, security uh, services, um, snow shoveling, you know, road maintenance. Uh, they do kind of zoning, uh, which some people get upset about. Um, but these homeowners associations, which are really private governments, that is how most of New housing in the United States is being developed. Yeah, I call them clubs. I think might be a better clubs. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. From uh, Jim Buchanan's work yeah. on uh, clubs, that's exactly uh, what they are: is uh, clubs. And so that failure of the public sector, which you're talking about in some of the inner cities and elsewhere as well, you know, the failure of security, the failure of police and fire and so forth, people are seceding. Uh, they're saying, well, we're not going to live here anymore and we're going to instead choose to live in these uh, more private uh, uh, communities or privately run communities. But how about for the rest of the folks who the, – the other 260 million who aren't living in those private communities? Um, you know, they're, they're – a huge part of, of America, of course, is living in suburbs where – and so-called edge cities where – uh, the failure of the of the central city governance has, has pushed people out into uh, they're still they're still public they're still uh, county government in those places and and things are still publicly run off and garbage streets etc. But what about the folks in the in the classic American cities of Chicago, New York, Detroit, Philadelphia, Boston, and so on who are very much living in uh, centralized, top down, publicly run politically run uh, areas. Is there anything we can learn from Gurgaon that's um, useful for them? I think where government is useful is laying out these, uh, st the, the, the structure, um, you know, laying out where parks are going to be and where uh, lines, electricity lines are going to run and things, things like that. And then getting out of the way. Um, if we think about what are the best cities in the United States, particularly for the, uh, the poor, uh, it's places like Houston, which have no zoning uh, and which have uh, very easy uh, regulatory systems in which you can build. You know, you can get a permit to build within a matter of days, you know, compared to New York, where you've got to go through a dozen different um, permitting processes and you have to hire specialized people whose only job is really to stand in line and to help you get through the uh, process of getting a permit to build. Houston, in contrast, much easier. And uh, housing prices, because of that, are low. So people of modest means can still buy a house in Houston. 
And they can't do that in many other places uh, in the United States because of zoning and not in my backyard, uh, kind of a secession of the rich, not in terms of these gated communities, but in terms of adding on rules and restrictions and how large your lot has to be um, in order to build a house, what has to be on, how many people can live in the house. All of these things have made it extremely expensive to uh, buy in any of these uh, cities, which are use more top-down planning. And what do you think is going to be, we'll close with this, what do you think are the the biggest things that might happen that would make currently not, not so viable cities more viable? You know, Detroit's an obvious example. Um, we should have talked about Detroit earlier. Detroit has, it's a, it's a regular public city, but the public part of it's kind of broken down because they don't have any money. Uh, and as a result, there's a lot of private stuff going on in Detroit an end around, I think of it as, uh, just like these private school systems in uh, very poor countries when the public system is, is totally ineffectual. There's a lot of private provision of services in Detroit, is my understanding. Uh, again, is that maybe a way forward uh, that might change some of these cities that are floundering? So it's interesting. The biggest success in Detroit um, has largely followed this model. It's that the founder of uh, Quicken, right, decided that he was going to go to Detroit and reestablish um, the central city and uh, bought a whole bunch of buildings in Detroit. And because uh, there's been a single owner, has managed to establish at least a bulwark or a uh, a landing ground for hopefully from some, some a more toehold that might become e- a foothold. E- exactly. Yes. Thank you. Um, but I'm not that especially optimistic about um, Detroit. Um, look, another thing we have to remember is that creative destruction. It's not just about firms. It's also about cities. You know, sometimes uh, cities are no longer in the right place. Uh, and they no longer have the industrial base, uh, which is necessary in order to you know to want to have a city there. So I, I would focus less on the cities and more on the people. Maybe the best thing for people in Detroit is to leave Detroit. Luggage, uh, baby. Luggage, <laughs> baby. Ex- exactly. I mean, it's remarkable when we think about the mass immigration from the uh, south. Uh, you know, away from Jim Crow laws and into uh, and away the from north. cotton, yeah, and away from cotton, exactly into the north. Uh, millions of people uh, moved towards a better life, and you know, in many ways, that was incredibly uh, successful. Not that they left all of their problems, plenty of problems, but that was incredibly successful. And now we're seeing similar movements of people often into uh, you know the south, into the Sun Belt, uh, and we're seeing, of course, immigration. We're seeing lots of people from Mexico, you know, coming up and from other Latin American countries coming up into the United States. So they're founding new cities and new ways of life and uh, new schools and new developments and so forth. Um, so I, I'm less, I, I, you know, I don't have this uh, view that every city must stay the same as it's always been and, and never uh, decline. Part of creative destruction is the destruction. So we are going to see uh, cities decline. And if we really want to help the people in those cities, we should help the people, not the cities. My guest today has been Alex Tabarrok. Alex, thanks for being part of EconTalk.
Thank you for having me, Russ. This is a brief postscript to the interview with Alex Tabarrok dealing with his mention of the Coase theorem and the insights of Ronald Coase, which come up fairly regularly here at EconTalk. Early on in today's conversation, Alex said the following, and I've, I've cut it a bit, but it captures what he said. Quote, when my co-author and I went to look at this city, what I expected was maybe what you might have expected as well. What we'll see is the Coase theorem working itself out, these islands of planning and these private office parks that they'd slowly come together and that the private system would solve these problems of economies of scale and that slowly you'd get two office parks joining to build a sewage system. They'd combine together, even if they were from different companies, to create eventual, eventually an efficient electricity system. And that we just didn't find. That was the surprise to me. The transactions costs were just too high, end quote. Now, I think Alex got the ec- economics exactly right. And later on in the conversation, he went into more detail about the nature of the transaction costs. And I thought that was very, very interesting. The only thing I want to quibble with is a semantic issue. And it's one that's come up a lot here in the past. And I wish I'd mentioned it when Alex was talking. Alex said he was surprised not to see the Coase theorem in action, people finding ways to allocate resources to their highest use and taking advantage of economies of scale. My response would be that he did see the Coase theorem in action. We just have a different way of describing the Coase theorem. Because to the extent there is something called the Coase theorem, that is a profound result from Coase's 1960 paper, The Theory of Social Cost, it's the point that in the presence of transaction costs, resources don't necessarily flow to their highest use. Coase made two key points in that 1960 paper. The first insight is that in the absence of transaction costs, the assignment of property rights isn't important because resources will flow to their highest use regardless who, who, of who owns the rights to a particular asset. That is, regardless of who has the property rights, if another party places a higher value on the asset or property right, they'll negotiate a purchase from the rights holder. This seems obvious now, but it wasn't when Coase presented it in 1960, and it's a very important insight. It makes you realize that often the allocation of property rights or an asset determines who benefits from it, not whether the resource is used for its most valuable application. But the second insight of that 1960 paper of Coase is maybe even more important. That is, in the presence of significant transaction costs, which can often be the real-world case, the assignment of property rights matters very much. When transaction costs are high, it's expensive to reallocate or negotiate, and that can mean valuable resources get underutilized, and there's no guarantee that things will work out well. Now, I've talked about these two parts of Coase's article a number of EconTalk episodes, including the episode with Coase himself shortly before he passed away. And, of course, I've also talked at length with guests such as Don Boudreau and Robert Frank about the further implications that come from Coase's way of thinking about property rights, particularly when there are externalities involved. So coming back to what Alex said, he was using the term Coase theorem the way it's often used the resources will get allocated to their highest use through negotiation, even if things don't look so good to start with. My point is that I don't think that captures what Coase emphasized or what Coase himself saw as his most important contribution, and that was the role of transaction costs in determining where resources ended up and barriers to negotiation. And, of course, Alex understands that. I've chatted with him after this episode was recorded and told him I was going to add this postscript. Uh, this is just in many ways a semantic issue, but it's a semantic issue, as uh, longtime listeners know, that I care about very much. And uh, I think it's important to to make it clear what I think Coase at least thought was his most important contribution. 
Talk to you next week. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.